Wasn't sure you'd be here to fill in for Laura today, Layla. I thought that baby of yours wouldn't wait to make her entrance on the great stage of life. Yeah, we have about three weeks left before the stork drops off our bundle on our doorstep. <laughs> that's that's how that works, right? Yeah, that's, <laughs> well, I'm glad you can make it, and I better get started in case she decides to rush. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the news by the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, and I am with columnist Layla Atassi, who is filling in as co-host for the vacationing Laura Johnston. How are you, Layla? I'm doing very well under the circumstances. How are you? <laughs> well, before we get to some stories, I want to say I'm a bit loopy today. I had the second of the two shingles vaccines yesterday, and like yeah. the first one, it has knocked me on my keister. Oof. Vaccines usually don't do that to me, but man, oh man, this one did. So if I say something stupid or more stupid than usual, that's why. I'm glad I got it. I've had <laughs> shingles twice. One time really bad. It was the most painful thing I've been through, and I know I know. A guy cannot really complain about pain to a woman who's about to go through childbirth. So let's just leave it there. I'm loopy. Well, I appreciate that uh, sense of self-awareness. Uh, but, but I, you know, the shingles are awful. I remember what you went through last time. So good for you for getting the, the vaccine. <laughs> yeah, I hope this wears <laughs> off. You're fresh off publishing a winner of a column about an atrocious failing of the city-owned Cleveland Public Power Utility. So that was a great column. Thanks so much. So, you know, basically, I, I had been hearing stories for a, a little while now about low-income CPP customers who say that the utility cut off their power without giving them proper warning and things like that. And in other cases, customers who were elderly or they were disabled and had a doctor's medical certification that should have prevented CPP from disconnecting them uh, were saying that CPP didn't honor that, even though the city law requires them to. So I've been kind of hearing this buildup of stories, and a lot of them were trickling in, uh, trickling out during you know a series of public hearings that the End Poverty Now Coalition had sponsored. But what really kind of struck me um, um, was the most uh, was the fact that that city ordinance requires uh, CPP to add to all of its disconnection notices a disclaimer kind of explaining to customers what their rights are, that they have the right to appear before this impartial panel, a board of review, if they would like to contest or complain about uh, what's happening to them. And this wasn't appearing on any of the disconnection notices, and as it turns out, the reason they don't explain those rights is because, drum roll, there is no board of review. And so there is literally no way for customers to file a complaint against CPP and have it heard. And of course, if there's no accountability, that really just leaves the door wide open for all these other violations that customers have been complaining about. What's all the more distressing about this is the city clearly doesn't know how to do this right. As you noted, the Cleveland Water Department has a well-publicized, fully functioning appeals process. You would think that if one utility could get it right, both could. Yeah, you'd think. <laughs> you might remember that the Water Department was a giant mess probably a decade or so ago, and the city had to hire consultants to lead that big turnaround of that utility. So I'm not entirely sure if the Water Review Board was a result of that effort or if it predated it. But it's, it's interesting to me that the Water Department has this very functional review board, and it happens to serve residents in dozens and dozens of suburbs. And so that is, uh, 
you know, very curious to me. You know, well, that that's I hadn't thought that it, it is serving the suburbs. It does strike me. There is one person that is in charge of public utilities at the city. So you would think that one person, as they were launching on the yeah. fix of the water department, would say, hey, guys, I we know have some other utilities in this town. Maybe we should be doing both. I agree. I agree. I, I can't believe that this has escaped the attention of so many levels of government. You know, I can't believe that city council, which has a dedicated public utilities committee, uh, no never, clue, no clue, <laughs> not at all. I like how you erased any confusion about this by simply calling CPP as a regular person and asking how to arrange an appeal hearing. Yeah, they told me that they don't have a board of review. They were pretty point blank, but that they said that they would assemble one if a customer requested it. And the only way to really test that was to call customer service the way a customer would and ask how would one go about filing a complaint and having it heard before this panel. And the representative I spoke to said, we don't have anything like that. <laughs> then she went on to advise me that if if the problem is that my bill is too high, maybe I'm using too many space heaters in my home. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> Help is on the way, though, because of your column. You talked to City Council President Kevin Kelly, and he was distressed by what he learned from Yes, you. yes. Kelly, Kelly was, was unaware that the law requires that customers have access to this review board. Um, until now, he said that his staff had just been fielding complaints from CPP customers and trying to resolve each one directly with the utility. And he's had success with that. But he told me that he has asked Council's Public Utilities Committee Chairman Brian Casey to start researching the issue and, and really kind of set them on the path toward making it right. All right. Well, again, well done. Thank you. Let's talk about another one before we bring in our first guest. Sherwin-Williams has announced formally to Big Fanfare that it is staying in Cleveland. It will build its headquarters on Public Square and its research facility in Brecksville. Now, this is not earth-shattering news. Our City Hall reporter Bob Higgs reported month ag- months ago that Sherwin-Williams had notified leaders it was staying in the region. Back then, it was looking at multiple sites in Cleveland, and Bob reported a suburb. Sources told Bob at the time it was Brecksville, but we didn't report that because we didn't have it from enough sources. Anyway, Layla, this is a big deal for Cleveland. Yes, definitely. I mean, they've been headquartered in Cleveland for 154 years. They employ thousands uh, and, and pay very well. Um, losing the, the headquarters would have been just crippling to the city. They, they say that they'll spend $600 million on these projects, although they, they won't really start moving in for at least three years. Of course, one of the big questions will be, what are the incentives they are getting? We saw in the Amazon deal a willingness to be quite charitable with a big employer. The problem with that Amazon deal, as we all know, was the desperate efforts of the city and county to illegally deprive the public of knowing what was offered. This time, I'm told by everybody, we'll get the full transparency once the incentives are settled upon. I don't think they're final yet for submission to the various governments that have to approve it. Yeah, the company says this this involves 3,500 jobs now and will add another 400. So it'll meet the basic rules for getting incentives. Yeah, and I don't think anybody's going to oppose incentives. This is the, the nice thing about Sherwin-Williams is that no technology appears to be on the horizon to replace what they do. We live on a planet where the elements cause things to rust and deteriorate. Mm -hmm. Paint and other coatings preserve those things. We're going to need them for a good long time. This is not an industry facing obsolescence, so it's worth fighting for. We have well, we have a couple of other issues, city issues to talk about. So let's bring in City Hall reporter Bob Higgs. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Hello. So, Bob, since our last episode, a, a lot has happened. 
involving the two questions on the Cleveland ballot from March 17th. One, to shrink city council from 17 to nine members, and the other to cut their pay. These got on the ballot through a citizen initiative, but now those citizens have changed their minds. What's going on here? They they did change their minds. They had this news conference where they announced after meeting with a coalition of Cleveland clergy, principally from the west side, that they wanted to step back, pull the issue back, do a study, and come up with ideas for good government given the city council. And now they say as part of that, that means withdrawing the petitions and trying to stop the issue. And when you called the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections originally, what did they tell you? Oh, it's simple. Well, it's too late to get it out the ballot, but we just won't count the votes. You know, when I read your story, I wondered where the Board of Elections got the power to make that happen. And I went looking for it in the Ohio statutes, and I could not find it. So we've had reporters working all week, talking to everyone we can think of, to find out how they can how they can legally do that. If, if there's nothing in the statute that explains how you can pull this off the ballot, how can you pull it off the ballot? We still don't have a straight answer. No, we don't have a clear one. We have a... A, a sense of what's likely going to happen. But you're right, it's not clear in the statute. And quite honestly, when we called the Secretary of State and when we called the uh, County Board of Elections, uh, initially it seemed like they didn't know what was happening, or at least the people speaking for them didn't. They did walk back the original, yes, it automatically we won't count it because they need to get research done, they need to talk to attorneys, and they have yet to call the Cuyahoga County attorney. Well, frankly, this... As we speak, this they have the organizers have not pulled the petitions. They haven't taken the step, right? Right, and that's that's one of the things that muddies this up a little bit. Is it gets on the ballot because they put the petitions in, and that forces city council to put it on the ballot. Um, if they withdraw their petitions, city council would still have to act to take it off the ballot, and none of that's happened yet. They, I talked with one of the organizers, and he, he says. Yeah, we're still going to pull the petitions, but until that happens, uh, things are sort of at a standstill. It, it is remarkable to me that when you look at the statute and you look at city ordinances, the process for putting something on the ballot is incredibly detailed. Every step, every little thing, and that there's a rigor placed on it. If you don't have the right voters, and on, but taking it off, it's kind of, <laughs> there's nothing like that kind of specificity. No, there isn't. And I've, I have wondered a little bit if they, they put pretty strict rules in to get it on the ballot so that you have to be serious if you're going to get something on the ballot. But you, but you also had, what, 20,000 people sign these petitions. And so I, I, it, how do you just thwart the will of 20,000 registered voters? Somebody went around with these petitions. These 20, it's 20,000, right? It's, or 10, it's about, well, they had about 6,500 on each, presumably there's right. some overlap. But still, it's but thousands it's, it's thousand, of people. Thousands of registered voters wanted to put this on the ballot so that their fellow Cleveland residents could vote on it. And they just get ignored because the organizers decide, oh, yeah, we changed their minds? Uh, and I think that that's part of the conversation that's going to have to take place because— you have those interests there. But on the other side, you're balancing that against the city wouldn't have put this on in the first place unless they were forced to. And if the people who wanted it now say they don't want it, do you still force the city to do it? But all those voters that signed the petitions also, also said they said wanted that, right. it. And they're not going into City Hall to say we want to take our names off the petitions. Do they not count in this equation? No. They're just pawns? They're pawns. Oh, man. So early voting starts in a couple of weeks. Do Clevelanders vote on these issues or not? 
right now, uh, early voting starts, I think, the 19th. If you start thinking about... The military ballots are already military out. Military ballots went out, right, mm-hmm. and overseas ballots. So if the petitions don't get pulled until sometime next week, the 17th is the next council meeting after that, and that's a holiday so that one is scrubbed. So we could start early voting with these still being active issues. Um, ultimately, my bet is they're going to have to sit down and decide what to do. Do we pull this off? And we'll get, we might get back to the oversimplified answer they gave us the first time. That, okay. that you'll vote on them, but no, they won't even tally uh, the issues at all. Yeah, yeah. I just want to see what the authority for that is because yeah, I'm not buying this. I'm dying to know how folks would vote on this issue, to tell you the truth. What do you think, Bob? Do you do you think people would vote to keep council at its current size but slash their pay? Or, I mean, if they reduce the size of council, who do they turn to when the administration isn't doing its job, right? Right, and I, I think what you just hit on is what the campaign against these issues would be. But there is no campaign, and we're like six weeks away. When well, would that start? Well, that's part of the problem with this is that uh, the people at City Hall want this resolved because they were ready to start leafleting neighborhoods and and push that message. And the great fear now, what do you do? By City Hall is that people who who are down who who are just down on things. They want change. You know your typical Trump voter kind of thing will vote for change no matter what, even if it does mm-hmm. detriment. I mean, everybody, all sorts, we talked about this last week, all these influential people have come out against this. We had editorials ready to go saying, don't do this. This is one of the dumbest things a voter could do to take away their voice, right? You you and Rich Exner calculated, you go from 25,000 residents per council person to 42,000. How is that good for anybody? There's really no argument for it. But there's a fear that people just want change, no matter what right. change is. Mm. If there's if they're disgruntled, here's a way to strike back, and yeah. that that's a real fear. It too. feels very punitive. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay, Bob. One other city issue, and uh, I really feel for you on this one because <laughs> I covered a bunch of these when I was the city hall reporter, and I think Chris covered a few too in. Uh, a previous century, okay. All right. yeah. <laughs> but but you know it's the wonkiest day of the year. I'm talking, of course, about the introduction of the city budget. Mayor Frank Frank Jackson uh, has introduced a lot of them. What's in store for this year? Oh, it has exciting things like preparation <laughs> and uh, uh, stabilization in it. Yeah, uh, uh, actually, the city right now is pretty flush. They went through some really lean times. They got voters to raise the income tax, and that made up for a lot of things that hurt them uh, between the recession and cuts in state aid. Mm-hmm. And the the mayor has now reached a point where they've been restoring services, and he's planning for the future too. He wants to get to a point where when we have the next recession, the city's in a position to weather that without having to lay people off, without having to cut services. So some of it has that. They're going to put more into a rainy day fund. They're going to uh, get themselves in better position for bonding. But they do have some other things in it. They want to add some more cops. They've been working really hard to get up above 1600 They're just getting there. The mayor doesn't think that's quite enough yet for where they want to land. Um but that's hard to do because you have about 100 or so retire every year, and you can only do 40 to 50 in a class at a time. Uh, they want to add a little more fire. They want to add some more EMS. And he's got capital things he thinks they'll get to, too, like uh, replacing old ambulances and old trucks and uh, 
other um, exciting things like roof repairs. They just actually approved about two million in roof repairs for some utilities buildings. And so this is like the most boring stuff ever. If if Jackson ever leaves office and we can talk <laughs> about legacy, and man, there's no clue that he's willing to do that in two years. Um, one of the strongest things he did as mayor was was get the city through that recession and a series, a long series of state savaging of the city budget. I mean, Layla remember. I mean, I remember. Layla remembers. Anybody that works here remembers the number of times he came in here, you know, up against it, where where <laughs> they don't have the money. They're taking money from the previous year and they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. And it did completely change when that tax passed. I mean, it, it was more interesting when he was up against it because you had to scramble and figure out how to do it. Now they got tons of money, and it seems like his chief purpose is how do I shelter this money so city council doesn't squander it on their pet projects? Right. So, you know, adding money to the rainy day fund keeps it out of the council's hand. Is there any pushback from council saying, whoa, 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 whoa? You know, we've been starved for a long time. We want to spend some money in our wards. I expect that's that's the excitement of the budget hearings that are coming up is uh, watching for the pushback because a lot of it is pro forma. I mean, some things with city government don't change year to year. It's just that's how government operates. But there are some people on council who have grumbled the last couple of years as things have gotten better. We should be spending more on services. We should be doing this. We should be doing that, whether it's street paving or reopening police mini stations oh, the street paving since they changed their system where they stopped letting the council people pick the roads and they kept paving the same roads over and over again the city is a much better place to drive yes. in mm-hmm. it's clear that that plan where they said the hell with what council members want we're going to do a needs-based assessment of the entire city and spend money on the roads that need it most it's it's become a completely different experience yeah. it really has and and i do a lot of driving around just to look around including side streets and it's not just the thoroughfares no the side streets are getting dealt with finally and they're and replacing the sidewalks when right. they do it. i mean that, that has been you know the council people didn't trust it and they still grouse about it but for anybody that drives in the neighborhoods on the main streets there has been in the last five years a huge turnaround in the quality streets i mean you, you used to have to have a four-wheel drive vehicle to drive in this right. city otherwise you were flat tires and busted rims but that is where you'll see some pushback is that they want they want more spending because they don't see a need to carry over and save as much towards the future Mm -hmm. i mean jackson's perspective is another recession is coming we have to be ready for it Mm -hmm. well thank you for joining us bob i cannot wait to see how that election issue winds up oh it should be fun thanks next up on this week in the cle politics editor jane cahoon on the china coronavirus stalled executions and a bunch of other state issues welcome to the podcast jane hi layla hi In our last episode, we were waiting for test results on the two Miami University students who returned to campus from China and got sick. Turned out, they did not have the much-feared China coronavirus, and for a few days, Jane, we thought Ohio was virus-free. Now we have another possible case. What do we know? What we know is that there's another possible case, (laughs) (laughs) and they are testing this person. The CDC is working on the tests, and once again, we're waiting to know whether that person has coronavirus. So over the past week, the number of cases in China has skyrocketed, and it's appearing in more and more countries. Health officials are more and more worried that they won't be able to stop the spread worldwide, but we still have very few cases in the United States. 
So Jane, as the threat goes, is the Ohio Health Department changing its advice for people or is it still kind of your basic prevention protocol, frequent, frequent hand washing, et cetera, things like that? Well, they're certainly still advising that, but they're also trying to tamp down any panic, noting that the flu is a bigger threat. We, we had an 11-year-old child die from the flu in Lake mm-hmm. County, and they're also stressing to be compassionate toward sick people. They shouldn't be treated like pariahs. Mm-hmm. You know, though, I, I mean, the, the idea that people keep saying you should be afraid of the flu. Yeah, I get it. 8,000 people have died of the flu and almost nobody, well, nobody's died in this country of the, the virus. But people are afraid of the China virus because of how little we know about it. I mean, we all know what the flu is and you can get shots to protect yourselves. Mm-hmm. You're kind of dumb if you haven't done that. But the China virus is completely new and hand washing seems like pretty weak advice for protection against what could be a pandemic. We're kind of stalled here without knowing more. And there's also a change in this newest Ohio case. Jeremy Pelzer reported this week, the Ohio Health Department is refusing to say even where it is. Yes, if I could just draw a contrast, because I lived through this. They held a news conference in Oxford, Ohio, which we attended at on a Sunday night in the middle of the Super Bowl, only to say those results were negative. Mm. And with the Miami students, we knew they were Miami students. We knew they had traveled to China recently. We knew they had flu-like symptoms. We knew that they were not sick enough to be in the hospital. This time around, we know a person is being tested. We don't know whether that person is old or young, what region of the state they live in, whether they're, they have sniffles or are gravely ill, We don't know whether they're male or female. Anyway, and on top of that, the health department has instructed all of the local health districts that they are not supposed to confirm or deny whether they have any suspected cases. So they can't even say, no, it's not, we don't have a case. Wow. You know, at the very least, one would hope that they would try to protect people who live or work in close proximity to this person and and monitor those people for symptoms until they can determine whether they're dealing with an actual coronavirus case. So why all the secrecy? What are they afraid of here? I I don't know that they're, they might be advising people who are close to this Hmm. person. We we don't really know that. So I don't want to say that. We don't know anything. It's a problem. (laughs) We don't know anything. They say, well, a local health district spokesman told us that they, you know, after the Miami students were, it was revealed that they were suspected cases that that brought a lot of attention on them. And they are worried about privacy. They, they said in their press release that we're trying to balance the public interest with people's privacy rights. But, you know, we talked about this last week. The, the public health officials are so bent on avoiding panic that it has the opposite effect by creating distrust. I mean, the much smarter play is transparency. China originally tried the secrecy route. New York Times had a great story that laid out that if they wouldn't have done what they did, they might have been able to stop the damn thing. <laughs> and if, if they had acted, if they had acted right away, they might have spared us from a possible pandemic. I just don't. Why are Ohio health officials following the the, the the lead of China in secrecy instead of just saying, look, it's an X county. It's an X year old person. We don't know. Um, you know, they haven't been exposed to that many people. Remember with the Miami University students, they said, yeah, we know who they've been exposed to. It's not that many people. And you're thinking it's a college campus. How could it not be that many people? <laughs> All right. 
Chris is very fired up about the coronavirus. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> so changing gears, let's let's talk about Mike DeWine's gun proposal. State legislators met with reporters this week on a bunch of issues, and one of the more enlightening discussions must have been distressing for people who thought we would end up revamping some of our gun laws. Yes. First of all, thanks to the Associated Press for ho- hosting this legislative forum. We, we learned a lot there, including the fact that the GOP leaders in the legislature are totally noncommittal when it comes to the governor's gun reforms. You know, uh, DeWine bent over backwards to work around the legislators' objections to a lot of the, the proposed gun regulations. He originally said he wanted a red flag law where, you know, if I'm related to you and I think you're loopy, if you just got the shingles vaccine, I could Uh-oh. say you're a danger to yourself and I should, you know, you should lose your gun. Um, Second Amendment supporters hated that, people in the legislature. So DeWine came up with a pretty cool idea where we have a system in the courts by which a judge looks at you and determines whether you are a danger. He wanted to add alcohol and drug addiction to those parameters. But if, if the court took you in and made, you know, and you had the right of representation, then you could be deprived of guns, which, which seemed like that might fly, but but nothing, man. There's just nothing going with this legislature. Yep. What else is in his proposal, and does any of it have a chance? Well, one of the more significant parts of the proposal deals with background checks, where there wouldn't be mandatory background checks. However, you'd be able to go to your local sheriff and get a background check if you wanted to buy a gun, and then you'd get a certificate that for the seller that would insulate the seller from being criminally prosecuted, it would say, yes, this person is legally allowed to own a gun. And at the same time, they they would change the standard. Right now, you have to recklessly sell someone a gun. And they would change that to you just have to be merely negligent to be to be breaking the law. So I, that one seems like such common sense. And it's voluntary. You don't have to do it. And legislators originally seem to think that would fly why? What is the objection to that? Is our Second Amendment people thinking, no, I should be able to sell to anybody I want, even if it's a bad person? <laughs> well, the Speaker of the House, Larry Householder, who comes from a rural part of Ohio, he said, guns there are a way of life for people. And the most important lobby are the millions of Ohioans who are lawful gun owners and want to see their rights preserved. One of the more interesting parts of the discussion was householders' take on who mainly is doing the mass shootings. Can you talk about that a little bit? So this was one of those moments where the reporters kind of looked at each other afterward and <laughs> said, is that what he just said? But he, Larry Householder said, you know, this seems to be a, a white male suburban issue. Uh, th- these are the people committing these mass shootings. And We really should take a look at that, you know, whether it's all the testing that they do in schools that's at the root of this. And uh, so that that was what he said. So school testing (laughs) is to blame for mass shootings. How is that possible? I'm afraid I can't answer what what his thought process was. Johnny shoots 17 people on Monday and another 14 people on Tuesday. I guess you get a math problem. That one makes absolutely (laughs) no sense to me. You know what they say, guns don't kill people, school testing kills people. (laughs) Is that what they say? Yeah, I think that's it, right? But another part of the discussion with legislators was about two bills that have been introduced that would eliminate the statute of limitations for rape, but for different sets of victims. 
I find this pretty upsetting. Jane, could you talk us through this these issues? Yes, Speaker Householder has been very vocal lately in nudging Ohio State to settle these cases uh, with the victims of Dr. Richard Strauss, the uh, now late do- uh, team doctor at Ohio State who abused mm, at least 177 young men. He thinks they should do the right thing and settle the case, and so he wants to nudge them by taking action on a bill that would it would very narrowly open a window for them to be able to sue Ohio State mm. over that abuse. At the same time, there's a bill that hasn't gotten any attention that would do away with the statute of limitations for rape. And Minority Leader Amelia Sykes was quite direct about this in saying, hey, we should... We should protect all victims of sexual assault. And we have this male-dominated leadership in the legislature, and they are sending a really bad message to women who are primarily affected by Mm -hmm. the crime of rape. But what am I missing here? Does somebody have a legitimate reason to not deal with the statute of limitations on rape? What's the argument for not? I mean, we know what the arguments are for. Layla was involved in a significant rape kit project six years ago that where where people were repeatedly getting caught right up against the statute of limitations. That's where the discussion of this started to go. So we know why it shouldn't be there. Why would anybody argue to keep it? Unless you're a rapist. <laughs> well, the speaker's reasoning is that he doesn't like to go back and retroactively change laws. And he said that's a lesson <laughs> he learned during the big tort reform fight of the early 2000s. He also made a remark about people's memories fading over time and that there's a reason for um, statute of limitations. Yeah. But a lot of the statute of limitations today, it's based on rape kits. It's DNA. It's not somebody's memory. I, I just want to add that I read his comment about how he's sensitive to the plight of victims, but, you know, memory is fallible. But guess what? Strauss's victims uh, were young men who were there between 79 and Good 98. Point. His argument about the fallibility of memory falls completely apart there. I mean, to push forth a bill that eliminates the statute of limitations for those male victims while completely ignoring the one that supports all survivors of rape, which, you know, are mostly women and girls, is some sexist nonsense. <laughs> All right, I was fired up on the coronavirus. Leila was fired up on the statute of limitations. Right, oh but that is an excellent point. This abuse happened like during the 80s and 90s. And it's, you know, it made a huge impact on these victims. They're still feeling the pain of this. And women are no different. Right. You know, anyway, so one more from that discussion. Legislators are are very ambivalent about Ohio's death penalty. Jane, what can you tell us about that? Well, we've seen execution after execution being postponed by the governor, mainly because the state is unable to acquire the drugs for executions. And the governor does not want to jeopardize the state's ability to acquire other drugs from these companies you know, that are used for Medicaid patients and, and other people. So the, but when the lawmakers were asked about it at this forum, none of them would say, yeah, we're going to do a moratorium or we're going to do away with the death penalty. It's just sort of like, yeah, these executions are just going to be postponed. We've been talking about this for a while and you and I actually disagree a little bit on this. 
Mike DeWine, I think, clearly doesn't want to execute anybody. If he wanted to execute somebody, they'd figure out the drug problem. And when he was in here last, we asked him about it. He even got a grin on his face and said, well, you're not seeing any executions, are you? And it was like <laughs> pride in his voice. I think the same religious beliefs that have him as a staunch opponent to abortion have him saying, I'm not going to have a death case while I'm... I'm governor. He just won't say that. I mean, it would be so nice if he would just say, look, I'm against it. And I have to sign the death warrants. I'm not going to do it. We keep getting this vague, vague nonsense about it. You are. It does seem like you are getting more and more people saying maybe we should get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. You and I have definitely tussled on this issue. I, I acknowledge you. You could be right. But I still see. <laughs> That's so diplomatic. Eh, he's my boss. You know. Um, but I do see DeWine as a as a big law and order guy. So as somebody who wants to uphold the law. But, but you you saw him that day, right? You were I there. I know. I know. It was like there was some pride there. Like, ha yes. ha, I'm not executing anybody. <laughs> Um, reporter Andrew Tobias had a, had an interesting follow to the national story he broke about a group affiliated with Donald Trump handing out cash to mainly black voters. How is that legal? <laughs> <laughs> this is a fascinating story. I, there is a charitable organization called the Urban Revitalization Coalition that was formed by allies of President Trump including the Reverend Daryl Scott, who many people around here know who he is. He's a vocal supporter of the president. He spoke at the Republican National Convention. He's hosted Trump at his church. Anyway, this charitable organization that he and some other folks formed held this Christmas extravaganza at the Galleria in December where they gave away $25,000 in cash in increments to people. At the same time, this event was, you have to say, very pro-Trump. They, they gave awards to two Trump administration officials, as well as Geraldo Rivera, who got up there and talked about how the president's being abused through impeachment and all he's done for the economy. There was lots of praise heaped on the Trump administration at this event. I just, how do they justify handing out cash, though? I mean, they're not saying it's buying votes. They're saying that it's ridiculous to suggest that. But, it, you know, it mm -hmm. kind of, what, what is, how do you justify it? I mean, there's, they're a nonprofit, right? Nonprofits right. are supposed to have a purpose. Is the, can you have a purpose of handing out money? I am not a legal expert, but, but we did talk to an expert who said, as long as they are not overtly advocating for the re-election of Trump at this event, they might be okay. However, uh, plenty of eyebrows are being raised over this as to whether is giving cash away to random people a charitable purpose. That's the big question here. And, and there were some speakers at these events who were kind of overtly, I mean, Geraldo Rivera was, is, is one who I, I recall, uh, you know, stumped for him so isn't that right, right. i mean that's right that's towing the line uh, yes but this one is getting national attention is, is is the thinking that if this is working in cleveland it will go national it's getting national attention because andrew tobias broke the story <laughs> Just wanna, wanna yes and out. it has since gotten attention from politico and the new york times and yes they they tried to hold an event in virginia at a historically black college but that one fell through the administration backed out of the college administration, I think, backed out of that one. But they have another event planned this month, Black History Month, in, in Cleveland. And they say, hey, if people are upset 
with the last one, they're really going to be upset with this one because it's going to be bigger and better. They're going to give away $50,000. What do the people who get the money have to say? Do we know? Are they more likely to vote for Trump's reelection having received the cash? Do they interpret the money as an attempt to buy their votes? Or do they just look at it as, hey, I got lucky. It's like a lottery <laughs> ticket. Well, the organizers insist they're not trying to buy votes here. But so what's the had... purpose then? Why would I give you the money? I'm just being nice. We did have uh, Hannah Drown was there uh, videoing, uh, the Facebook living the event in, the, in December. And one woman in particular won like 500 bucks or something. And she was like, whoa, go Trump. Yeah, four more years. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, you, you wow. draw your own conclusions there. <laughs> one last one for you, Jane. The, uh, the effort to make voter registration automatic when you apply for or renew a driver's license had a setback. What was it? Well, their summary petition language got rejected by the Ohio Attorney General because it was viewed as not an accurate reflection of what was actually in the amendment. In fact, I think Dave Yost, the attorney general, said the language was, the summary language was longer than the amendment itself. <laughs> and included so, stuff that wasn't in the amendment. I mean, this is and, one where you could say, boy, Yost got this one right. This made no sense whatsoever. They, they've got to go back now and collect another thousand signatures and revise their language, but they're still going ahead. Yeah, and, and we should say this is a citizen initiative to make voter registration automatic, and it, it's and there and some other other things that would bring back the golden day where you can it, register. It would and vote it would open like time. a twenty eight day window of early voting where you could yes register and vote, vote at, at the same, same time, time, which yeah. we had until twenty fourteen, right. and the Republicans in the legislature killed it. But what is amazing is how often this happens with with <laughs> initiatives. I mean, there are lawyers involved in this. You would think if you're going to go to all that effort to get these things signed, you would look at it and say, okay, you know, this, the summary is longer than it is. It includes stuff in there that shouldn't be in there. It's a multiple issue question. I, it just is remarkable how many times they go to the attorney general and the attorney general says, nope, you're, you, you're wrong. Yeah, the petitioner said, oh, this is kind of standard practice, but you do have to wonder. It's like, why do they always get it? It always takes at least two tries to get this right. Well, thank you, Jane, for all the great info. You know, uh, Laura is really missing out. I bet she regrets <laughs> going to sunny Florida this week. <laughs> this was a great, you know, lots of really interesting stuff going on. And we didn't even talk about the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> Have they finished counting yet? Uh, almost. All right. Thanks, Jane. Thanks. You're, lis you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney Astolfi. Hello, hello. Courtney, I'm mind boggled. Again, I cannot believe that we have yet another major gaffe coming out of Cuyahoga County government. We talk about this every week on this podcast, and I keep thinking nobody could have this many errors. They have to run out at some point, but silly me. This, is, this latest is a 30% cost overrun, $3 million in a computer system that we've not talked about before. We've talked about computer systems, but we, <laughs> we really haven't talked about this project. Yeah, this is a whole new one. I, I've never reported on this. So what we learned this week, uh, this was all kind of laid out in a council committee hearing. Council wanted to be brought up to speed on what's going on here. Uh, the county's current property tax system that they use for, you know, everything related to that is from 2002. And for years and years now, the county's been trying to switch over to a new system. And it kind of mirrors the ERP, which we have talked a lot about, in that 
there's been delay after delay, and that's caused the price tag uh, to go up. How much is that one? The cost overruns in that one? It's more than $3 million, right? It's a lot more. Yeah, yeah. it's it's around, I think, 30% over the original $25 million no, Maybe we budget. got a pattern here. Everything's going to cost 30% more. <laughs> when So when did this project start, and when was it supposed to be ready? Yeah, so it was supposed to start um, kickoff in January of 2016, and it was supposed to be done in January of 2018. And uh, here we are. You know, yeah. So, so <laughs> what what's costing the extra money? So a couple of things. Part of the contract with the person who's working on on implementing this new system is that the county was going to have to pay you know five hundred thousand dollars a year in maintenance for the new software that the company's working on bridging over and getting all the Cuyahoga County data integrated with. Uh, but the county can't use that software yet. But the contract requires them to pay half a mil a year. Wow. To hang on to so they're that. They're paying for software they can't use. And, and you know, a couple months ago, the new fiscal officer said, you know, he sat down with this company. They ended up getting like $360,000 back towards that. But it's still a big expense. And, and then also another part of the overrun is that the county, because they don't have this new system in place, they still have to pay to keep the old software going, which is about 600 a year. And the system that they have now, wasn't that the subject of another recent major county blunder? Yeah, so there was a problem a few weeks back that we reported on about uh, messed up property tax bills. The county failed to include special assessments for a handful of east side suburbs and their original property tax bills, and they weren't able to kind of send a, a generate a balanced due bill they had to just reprint and and send a new bill out to those east side communities and they blamed that inability on their old system full, full disclosure i should remind everyone that i was one of the ones who got that screwed up bill it's how we found out about that story i love it when the county mails me a notice to my house <laughs> saying we made a newsworthy mistake makes the job so much easier in this case, it is a county councilman, though, who revealed the errors, right? Yeah, so, like I said, this kind of went to a council committee, and all the councilmen who, who were part of that committee were like, what's going on here? But Jack Schron just kind of came out and, and kind of broke down the math publicly on the record of, of what this means for overruns. He called it a, a train wreck. Yeah, that was like a gift to the reporter. When 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 you got a public official that calls any kind of government system a train wreck, the reporter is very great. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it came in the context of these these council people have spent so much time getting familiar with the ERP and how computer integration projects are supposed to work. They know what questions to ask now. They know what to look out for. And this is... <laughs> so, so let me get straight. There's been so many mistakes that they have a playbook for getting to the bottom of them. <laughs> I, I, they, yeah, yeah, they know what to look for at this point. <laughs> so in lighter news, you, you also cover the Regional Transit Authority, and they want to create another transformative project in a neighborhood that's getting a lot of investment. Tell us about that. Yeah, so RTA, there's been kind of talk on and off in years past, but it seems like RTA is ramping up its efforts to try, and it wants to bring a bus rapid transit line to the West 25th Street corridor. And bus rapid transit is, uh, you know, a special kind of transit line. It's supposed to run more efficiently, quicker, higher frequency than normal bus bus lines. And they want to kind of, they hire, or they're, it looks like they're probably going to be hiring a consultant if the board approves it in a couple weeks to look at kind of the pieces and parts that would lay the groundwork for doing that work on West 25th Street. 
So unlike Euclid Corridor, which has one of these, West 25th, it's not a street with a lot of room. How can you just kind of shoehorn the system like this into a street that's that narrow? Yeah, so to be a federally qualified bus rapid transit line, you have to have so much of the route having its own dedicated bus lane Mm. during certain peak hours of the day. And like you said, West 25th Street is tight and busy. Now, the board members during a committee hearing this week brought up that issue and were wondering how RTA would be able to finagle that. And and that is kind of the point of the study, to see what options are out there. Uh, We also had someone from the City Planning Commission come up and say that that there are efforts ongoing to come up with a parking solution to free up curb space for other modes of transportation along Mm. that path. So there's different players working on figuring out how this might be able to come to fruition. How, how much would this cost and and how long do you think it would take? Yeah. So I talked to a a high rank in RTA official and he said the price tag is about 36 to 40 million Mm. and it would take about uh, five years. He said, which we'll have to see how that plays out and and what the consultants come back and say about the viability and how this could be implemented. Is there much demand for service on that Carter for what the the buses they have now? Yeah, 1.7 million annual ridership, they said, and that's one of the most most ridden lines. So is it a lot of Metro Health workers are probably taking it maybe and and because that's such a big employer over there? You know, I would assume so. That's also a very densely populated area. It can support that frequent and that robust of of a bus line. And, you know, this would, theoretically, this would coincide, a big part of this is coincide siding with Metro Health's big plan and to bring more development mm-hmm. to Clark Fulton. So they really kind of want to beef up this area. Other than the health line on Euclid, RTA has another one of these lines, right, on, on Clifton Boulevard? Yeah, so there is the C- the Cleveland State line along Clifton Boulevard, goes through Edgewater, Lakewood, Fairview, Rocky River, and it, and it ends at um, the Transit Center at mm-hmm. Cleveland State University. All right, let's talk next about the Cuyahoga County plans for a diversion center. This is a big deal, actually, because it's a key component of the justice reform that we've advocated for for seemingly forever. Rather than treat every drug offense or mental health issue as a crime, police would take addicts and those in mental distress to a diversion center instead of jail. Uh, County Executive Armand Budish has been beating the bushes to raise money for this thing for a while now. And Courtney, you've got a pretty big update on this. Yeah, so we recently saw the release of um, a consultant's draft report. They were they were hired a couple months ago to look at how Cuyahoga County could implement diversion here and really get a look at what populations of jail inmates might be eligible and how we could actually get this done. They're also involved with the ongoing efforts to rebuild or renovate the the, the justice center. So they're keyed into all this data and, and who's in jail, and and. They, their report recommended that, you know, the most effective way for Cuyahoga County to implement diversion would be to focus on um, a program that targets folks. They call it a pre-arrest diversion center. So it's not like folks are in jail and you're already and you're yanking them out of jail and putting them into treatment if they have serious mental health issues or substance abuse issues. It would be a place where police officers say they're on the street 
someone's in the middle of a mental health crisis, usually the only options for that police officer is take them to a hospital, which doesn't have capacity to treat people most of the time, and they get released immediately, or take them to jail. This gives uh, another alternative, and and it's it's about it's not just some place to hold people. It's about treatment and getting them the resources, medical, mental health that they need to hopefully put them on, on a better path forward. You know, Courtney, you and I recently got to tour the jail, and I think the thing that popped out for me was when they told us how big that population is of of seriously mentally ill or or drug addicted. I mean, it is a major, what is it, like a third or something like that of the jail population are dealing with one of those issues? It's That's pretty astounding. Yeah, roughly, about a third. And, and it depends how you categorize mental illness, but perhaps even more for people with less serious issues. And one thing that the consultants pointed out is people with substance abuse issues and mental illness stay in jail much longer on average than other folks. Mm. Um, I think it was about a 77% wow. longer length of stay. So there is a need for this, not only to get the treatment to folks who need it, but to reduce the jail population and get folks out of jail who probably right. ought not to be there. So where would this be and who would run it? Is there any thought that this should be developed as part of the new jail that we keep talking about, the the one that would replace the downtown jail that's been the subject of all the controversy? Well, the Buddhist administration wants to get this kind of piece of diversion up and running by the end of the year. So in that case, this effort that we're talking about now would not be part of the future jail. Mm -hmm. But the intent is to lay the groundwork and have those systems in place so that they're complementary when the new jail goes up. And and the new jail will have other pieces of diversion programs 100% in place. But this is an effort that they want to get done this year. So is this is this where they'll rely on St. Vincent then? And then there's been talk about St. Vincent possibly being a, a partner in this. Is that one of the, the places it could be? It's one of the places it could be. So what we're looking at now is the county's putting out kind of a request to all the folks in the community who, who, who could work and oh, partner oh, with so, the county So on lots this. of people could bid to do this. So they're expecting a lot of responses. Um, they say, you know, St. V will probably be one of the people responsi- responding. Well, Metro Health could too, though. Metro, the clinic, UH, any of the providers in the recovery sphere. This is really a wide net approach by the county to see what ideas are out there. You know, somebody could come forward and say, we've got some space that could easily be converted and maybe it's just for the, the substance abuse population over here. And then maybe there's a solution for the mental, mentally ill suspects over here. So they're really waiting to see what these folks say before deciding and, and figuring out where this I, is going to be and what it's going to look like. I would bet Metro would make a hard run. This seems like a perfect thing to spend the opioid money on. I mean, this they got the they got $100 million in cash that they, they got from the companies that caused the whole crisis and they want to spend it on things that that deal with the crisis. This would seem ideal. It's a you know it's one time money, so you don't want to put it into operations. But why not use some of this money to to build a first class facility that puts Cleveland and Cuyahoga County on the map? Has there been any discussion about that? You know there was discussion in the budget the during the budget last fall. The Buddhist administration included that two point five million dollars annually. For a diversion center, but, but that's we, that's operations. That's not capital money. That's the key is capital here. There really hasn't been any discussion of where the capital's coming from, if they do need to build or renovate. All right, but the county's broke, as Armin Budish always tells us. They keep going for tax increases. So 
if you got a capital expense and you don't have any budget for it, and then you got a hundred million dollars that you can spend on drug treatment, seems like a pretty easy thing to say. Hey, let's take twenty or thirty or forty million of that money and build a first-class center. It's right. Yeah, the county hasn't rolled out their plans for the bulk of the opioid money yet, so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that. All right. Originally, Budish wanted a diversion center that was post-conviction. When he first started talking about this, it was after they got convicted. Um, the, the east side ministers, the county prosecutor, I think Metro Health, all got together and said, no, 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 this would be much better pretrial. I know they were talking, but this study seems to resolve that dispute, that the, the pretrial is the way to go. Yeah, really, this study was the culmination of everybody, I think, getting on the same page. We're not going to know that 100% until the final report comes out in the next couple weeks. But... Everything that we're hearing points to everybody's on the same page now. Okay, Courtney, thank you so much for your time. Have a good one, no problem. Up next, some details on our newest newsletter, one to help you best use your leisure hours. It's this week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Mike Norman. Hey, good to be here. I So, listen, I happen to be one of those Cleveland moms who's always looking for new things to do with my family, and you have just launched something to help me out. We have indeed. Look, Cleveland.com has some of the best reporters around when it comes to writing about things to do in Cleveland. Um, for the last several years, we've had Joey Morona, Annie Nikoloff, Troy Smith, Mark Bona doing daily, weekly posts about all the cool stuff you can do around town, whether it's music or family fun or the latest hottest restaurant or what's happening at uh, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. So we decided uh, to make it easy for you. And you can sign up for To Do Cleveland, your essential going out guide. And every Thursday morning, we'll deliver to your email box uh, some of the greatest picks of that week and weekend. So, but you, you can't possibly include everything. So how do you choose what to include? Are you breaking it down by category? We are breaking it down by category. The thing, the thing starts off with top picks, which is kind of like the general best things going on that week. So this week, it's the Lumineers at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, Anastasia, the Broadway production at Playhouse Square, and then A Taste of Black Cleveland is a chef event going on at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, too. That kind of gives you a sense of the mix that we're looking for here, a mixture of young, um, old, um, family fun, uh, singles, you know, everything from 20-something singles to families, you know, uh, with, with young kids to empty nesters like me. So one of the reasons you put the time into creating this, and, and, you know, I salute you. You've been working on this for a while. You first started talking about this probably a year ago, is the popularity of the stories that you mentioned that we do each week by our talented staff. They draw some of our biggest audiences. I mean, those are very, very popular. People are looking, people like Layla, looking for things to do. So are those stories different than the newsletter? How, I mean, if I've been using those stories as my guide to Cleveland, how is the newsletter going to be different? You should definitely keep looking at those stories, and lots and lots <laughs> of people do, uh, because we are able to act in real time about what's, you know, what's news, what's happening, and uh, we give you a much broader uh, cross-section of everything going on around town in the daily posts that we do. But I would view this as kind of like uh, your curated list, like if you were calling up somebody in a city uh, that you were visiting that you knew and you'd, you'd say, what should I do this week? And you knew that person to be an expert. These are the expert picks. We're using our deep knowledge of 
what's going on in Cleveland to give you the best of what's happening that week. Do you, do you worry that when people are looking for things to do, they just break down into too many categories? Some people want music. We have a newsletter for that, too. Some want theater. Some want things to do with their kids. Some want out, outdoor activities. How do you deal with all of that and maintain an identity for this new product? Well, I mean, it was one of the challenges in building the product. Like, who do you, you could aim a newsletter just at 20-something singles. You could aim a newsletter at... Uh, empty nesters we are a general interest news site so we are attempting to do the impossible which is be everything to everybody but actually i think this thing is very focused i'm joking this thing <laughs> is very focused um for a broad-based audience it's not you know here's the newsletter for music for goth kids or anything mm -hmm, like that mm -hmm. it's um you'll it, be bringing that idea next week yeah yeah but on the music side it gives you everything from well, uh, this week, uh, a, a rapper who won a Grammy is 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 listed there, uh, and the motels would totally '80s live is listed there. So you have a broad cross section. So, Mike, how much does this cost? It's absolutely free, Layla. Oh my goodness! And how do you get it? <laughs> you can um, go to uh, Cleveland.com and look for our subscriptions page for our newsletters. Cleveland.com slash newsletters. Slash newsletters. It will lead you there. Click entertainment and you will you will see the to do newsletter sign up. We'll also be posting lots of stories in the next few weeks where we'll give you ways of doing that they too. You can go directly, Cleveland.com slash newsletters. Thanks, Mike. Can't wait to check out the next issue. All right. So while we've got you here, let's talk about something that most certainly will make the newsletter later this year, the biggest music event of summer. The Rolling Stones are returning to Cleveland after 18 years away. I believe you might have seen them the last time they were here. I did, 2002 at Gund Arena, and before that at um, the stadium when I was the music critic at the Plain Dealer. But yeah, the Rolling Stones are going out on um, their uh, no-filter tour, June 19th, First Energy Stadium. Um, Pre-sale tickets go on sale February 11th. General public tickets go on sale February 14th. Uh, we're looking at list prices from around the country of about $49.50 to $499.50 plus fees. And VIP packages will be even more, and they haven't been announced yet. So I, I know someone who saw them last year back east, and he said you'd never know these guys are as ancient as they are. They are ancient. He said their energy was overwhelming. Mick Jagger is a freak of nature. So <laughs> as long as Mick Jagger can continue to be Mick Jagger – continue to strut, continue to sing, continue to dance. Um, you can kind of hide a little bit of what Keith and Ronnie Wood are doing. They have other people and other things like that, although maybe it might just be them this time. But, yeah, they're they're like, uh, I don't know, like did they make the deal with the devil at the crossroads instead of <laughs> Robert Johnson? I'm not sure. They got a mirror in their attic where, where somebody's getting old. Exactly. <laughs> So how hot will this ticket be? What will people end up paying on the secondary market? I think it will be a hot ticket for good seats. I don't know that it will sell out. Now, I could hmm. be wrong. I could be wrong. Because um, people might, as some in our newsroom were saying, oh, this will be the last chance I get to see them. Mm -hmm. Of course, we've said that. I think I wrote that in 1994 <laughs> when they toured with the Steel Wheels, which we called Steel Wheelchairs Tour. Let's, but so let's that's 30 it, years ago. Some of the people in our newsroom, this is the first chance they'll have to see them. Well, that's <laughs> very <laughs> true. That's very true. Um, I think you'll probably be seeing the best seats going for north of 1,000. Whoa. Oh, man. Well, Mike, you can't leave yet. All right. Tell us about the Greenhouse Tavern. 
So Scene Magazine uh, and their very well-respected dining writer, Doug Tretner, is reporting that the Greenhouse Tavern, uh, one of the anchors of the East 4th Street um, Entertainment District, uh, will be closing on or on or about Valentine's Day. Now, this is a restaurant that is uh, one of the flagships of one of Cleveland's best-known chefs, Jonathan Sawyer, who uh, won a James Beard Award, kind of the Oscars of the food industry. The only other Clevelander to do that is Michael Simon. So losing this restaurant would be a big loss to Cleveland. Yeah, isn't this Cleveland's best-known restaurant right now? It certainly is one of the best-known restaurants in Cleveland. I think Michael Simon's restaurant, Lola, is probably still better known, particularly outside of Cleveland. But in Cleveland, and downtown in particular, it is most definitely mm. the highest-profile restaurant. I mean, it just had a huge accolade, right? It was an Esquire or what? Yeah, es- it- Esquire magazine named it... Um, one of the most influential restaurants of the past decade. Wow. Now, and we're the only one between New York and Chicago to make the list. Correct. Right? Yeah. Mm. Um, he's an interesting and adventuresome chef. He deals a lot with meats. Like one of the one of the big things at the Greenhouse Tavern that some people were like, ew, about was this pig head dish that he did that was like, oh, my God. And the um, the um, the chicken wings are were or still are for a while the best in Cleveland. Mm. So we'll see. We'll have to see. We're digging into why this is happening. We don't quite know exactly yet, but uh, scene reported that the staff was told yesterday. Okay, Mike, you are free. Thank you for all the updates and good luck with the newsletter. Thank you very much. We already have like two hundred people signed up, right? We do. That's pretty good for day one. All right. I'm happy. We'll see you. <laughs> So, Layla, how did you like co-hosting? You see a future as a podcast host? Yeah, you know, I, I already have some ideas for improving this production. <laughs> Maybe with some sound effects, like on stories about government failures, you could do like a womp womp <laughs> kind of thing. What part of today's conversation resonated with you the most? Well, I think, obviously, I got most fired up about the dueling bills dealing with statutes of limitations and, and rape cases. My blood just boils thinking about that. How about you? What's your story of the week? I can't get enough of the coronavirus, but really my favorite story this week was your column. It's Aww. it's great watchdog reporting. It's advocacy for people who could use a boost. It's public service. I mean, it's the heart and soul of why we continue to fight the challenges of our industry to try and remain here. Um, and and so even if you like hosting the podcast too bad, you're too valuable as a columnist. <laughs> I don't know what we do, what we're going to do when you're on maternity Aww. leave. That's so kind of you to say. Thank you, Chris. But I'll be back before you know it, and I'm sure all my favorite Cleveland.com commenters are excited to hear that. <laughs> I don't know what they'll do when I'm on maternity leave. <laughs> all right, that does it for this episode. Thanks to Bob, Jane, Courtney, Mike, and to you, Layla, for the vibrant conversation. Thanks to you, our audience, for taking the time to join us. We're getting a lot of good feedback, which we love, but we appreciate any feedback, good or bad. Drop me a line at cquinn at cleveland.com. This week in the CLE is the podcast analysis of the news by the Cleveland.com news team. It's published Thursdays. On Saturdays, check out our much shorter bonus podcast where we ask the lingering and provocative questions remaining from the week's big stories. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode. I'm Chris Quinn, and we'll be back for another discussion next week. (laughs) 